0: verse 17 to 21, uh, which can be found on uh, page 824 of some of your pew Bibles. Uh, Note that today I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible version, uh, the 1977 version, uh, which may differ slightly. Um, Galatians chapter 2, verse 17 to 21. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, uh, for if righteousness comes from the law, then Christ died needlessly. This is God's word.
1: I had an opportunity for five semesters to teach the class known as World Religions in Indonesia when I was serving there as a professor at a Christian university. And during those five semesters, at the beginning of each semester, we would highlight an issue. In fact, we would highlight three issues that we called problems, that we called the problem of religion with regards to any of the religions or with Regards to the concept of religion in general. So we identified three different things. The first was, is when you look at all the different world religions out there, you see that there are competing authorities. You have different books claiming to be the word of God, different books claiming to be the authoritative texts. You see that in Islam. They claim that the Quran is the word of the prophet Muhammad, and therefore it is Allah's word. You see, in Christianity, we believe that the Holy Bible is the word of God. And so between the different religions, there's this problem of competing authorities. <clears throat> there are also other problems as well uh, as we think of religion. One of the other problems that we think of is how religion creates a sense of us and them. You have Christians and non-Christians. You have um Those who are Islamics and then the infidels, you have Jews, you have Gentiles. And what what we see in religion often is, is that it creates divisions between those who are in. And those who are out and sometimes those divisions have broken out into violence. If you study the history of religion, if you study the history of our world, if you study the history, especially the last twenty five hundred years, you will see that many of the conflicts happen because there was one religion over here and there was another religion over there. And they didn't get along because of this problem of the us, because we're on the inside and the them, everybody's on the outside. Now, that's not to say that the distinction between believer or unbeliever always inevitably leads to violence or persecution. It doesn't, but it has many times. And in the course of the study of the history of religion, we saw that in my class. But there's a third problem that came up and it came up with regards to every single religion that we looked at. And it's the problem of contradiction in the life of a believer hypocrisy in the life of a believer. And it doesn't matter which religion we're talking about you believe in. There is a uh, difference between what the sacred text says and sometimes what we do. Now, think about that with regards to Christianity. There's hypocrisy. There's contradiction in all of us as believers. There is a difference between what the Bible says we should be and we should do and what we often do. The Bible says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And sometimes we're angry and sometimes we stuff it. And sometimes that goes on for a few days or something like that until finally we, we come back together. We pray, we forgive, we talk out whatever our problems or our divisions are. And we come together. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that hypocrisy goes with being a religious believer in any religion. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that hypocrisy is good. I'm not saying that hypocrisy is to be pursued. I'm saying that hypocrisy is a reality that we have to contend with. And as we look at the text that we're looking at today and we um, go up a little bit in the text, if you've got your Bible in front of you, go back up to verse 11. You'll see the whole context of what is Paul's um, response to the hypocrisy that he sees in Peter. I'm going to go back and read verse 11 and following of Galatians chapter two. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews join him in hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried, carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are not Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So our passage today that picks up in verse 17 picks up right in the middle of the context of a conversation that. Paul had with Cephas Peter in the city of Antioch about a problem of religious hypocrisy. Now, I don't know about you, but it sort of disturbs me that the two great pillars of the ancient church who wrote a large part of the Bible, Paul and Peter are disagreeing, they're having a conflict and one of them is rebuking the other. And so as we we take a look at this, I think that it bears some reflection even before we get into actually the content of what Paul is saying here that he said to Peter. And as we reflect on the fact that these two pillars of the original early church, these two apostles, these two men who were commissioned because they saw the risen Christ to go and preach the Gospels, preached the gospel, Paul to the Jews and excuse me, Paul to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. They were not getting along. They had a disagreement over a very key foundational thing. It causes me to think about the fact that we need to consider today, which is that even the most influential leaders can sin and need to be rebuked. Peter had fallen into sin. He compromised the gospel in his practice when he decided that he was only going to eat with people who came from the circumcision. Even though he was a great leader, even though Jesus looked at Peter and said, upon this rock of your confession, I will build the church. Peter, you are the rock. And he was no longer called Cephas, but called Peter. He was renamed in order to point out how important his ministry was In the first and in the original church. But even Peter himself fell into sin. And even the most influential leaders can sin, can fall into hypocrisy and need to be rebuked. And sometimes this happens because leaders themselves put themselves on a pedestal. As if they can't be rebuked. But sometimes what happens in the church is, that sometimes church people will put a leader on a high pedestal and think they cannot be rebuked. And that can be a problem. Um, and sometimes when a leader falls into sin or falls into hypocrisy or needs to be corrected, the people were shocked. Well, you shouldn't be shocked. And the reason why you shouldn't be shocked is because of passages like this that point out these type of things. Another observation um, we can see uh, when we think about this whole idea of what happened between Peter and Paul is that the best way to handle it when there is a problem in the church is to bring people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Peter did when he pointed out the hypocrisy. That's exactly what Paul did when he pointed out the hypocrisy that there was in Peter you know, I'm a leader in this church and I've been a leader in many other churches. And I want to plead with you. I want to invite you. If you see that I'm in error, if you see some place where my life, like Peter's life, is not or was not in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I beg of you, come and point it out to me because all leaders have to stand under the authority of the word of God. And I appreciate the people who come to me. And say, hey, Pastor Tim, what about this? You know, what about that or something? Please, I will listen to you. I will not say, no, I'm I'm the, the lead pastor of Crossbridge. You're just a church person. You can't talk to me. I will never say that. I will welcome you, whether you're young or old. No matter what demographic you come from, I welcome you to point it out, just like Paul pointed out Peter's sin when that happened. But what do you do when you find that hypocrisy comes up in the church, actually comes up in a leader? We see this in the way that Paul responds to Peter. Look at verse 17. We get an idea about how we should think about it and how we shouldn't think about it. Look at verse 17. In the middle of this conversation that Paul's having with Peter, he says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. So what's happening here is, is that when hypocrisy and sin arise in the believer, Paul is saying, don't blame Jesus. You can't blame Christ. The problem is not Christianity. The problem is not the savior who died for us all. The problem is in us. So Paul says, Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if while a person is seeking to be a Christian and be justified in Christ, it's found that they're a sinner, then the problem is not Christ, the problem is them, and all that that sin proves is that they're a transgressor. Now we've got to face something head on. We've got to face the fact that as Christians, we can still sin. So then what difference is there between a Christian or non-Christian? There's a big difference because what happens even in this text and I'll show you in just a moment and what happens in Christianity and what happens in the churches is we can tell the difference between whether or not a person is simply a sinner or a Christian who's struggling with sin because of the issue of whether or not they repent of their sins. So Paul, speaking in a hypothetical in verse 18, says, if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, in other words, if I go back to this sin that I left, I prove myself to be a transgressor. But Paul wasn't the one who sinned in this instance. It was Peter. So he was speaking hypothetically. But then between verses 18 and verse 19, he switches from speaking in the hypothetical as if he were the transgressor to then speaking From his own personal testimony, which is true not only of him, but of Peter and of all Christians. And notice the switch that happens from the hypothetical of verse 18 to then what happens in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Notice what he says and notice what we can learn from this. I mean, we've learned that when hypocrisy and sin arise in the believer, don't blame Jesus. We've seen that uh, if you've not repented of your sin, you're simply a transgressor, but we've also seen that you can be a Christian and still struggling with sin, so that at that point, what do you need? You need the gospel, Allah, Paul, Allah, the Bible, according to this way in which Paul brings us the gospel. And notice how he brings it. This is so amazing. In verse 19, the first thing he does when he talks about his own testimony, he, he gives a testimony in relationship to the law of God. And the reason why he did this was because the whole issue in Galatia was that the Judaistic Christians had come into the church and said, you've got to be a Jew in order to become a Christian. You've got to keep the Old Testament law in every aspect in order to be saved. And so the first thing that Paul does when he asserts the gospel in verse 19 and gives his testimony, he says, for through the law, and that's capital L, the Old Testament law in all of its entirety, I died to the law that I might live to God. The law for Paul had become the schoolmaster to lead him to Christ that he might be justified by faith. The law had become the thing for him that he tells us about in Romans seven that showed him that he was a sinner because when the law said thou shalt not covet, it produced in him covetousness for every kind of thing. So through the law. As it came into Paul's life, he realized that he was a sinner and then he came to the point that he died to the law. In other words, it no longer had power over him. It no longer was the system that he was trying to follow or obey because something happened to him and that something comes from verse 20. He had an experience of Jesus Christ, which he describes as being crucified. With Christ. So as he dies to the law, he lives to God because he was crucified with Christ. And so the gospel for Paul and the gospel for all of us is that no longer does the law of God in any of its aspects stand in a position to determine who we are and to condemn us for our failings. That's absolutely amazing. There's no aspect of the Old Testament law that can come over our lives, not even the Ten Commandments right now and condemn us. If we stand with Christ and stand crucified with Christ, we stand in Christ. And so we are dead to all of the condemnation that comes from the law for the purpose that we might live now to God. The only thing the law can do is show us our sin, incite us to sin, says Paul in Romans seven. Before we're regenerate, before we have that experience with Jesus Christ. But then in verse 20, when we have the experience with Jesus Christ, he calls it and he says this has already taken place in his life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says this in Romans six. He gives us this concept of being united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And we see that even in this verse. He speaks of being crucified with Christ and he speaks of living by faith even now. So when Paul trusted in Christ, he realized that the I that was Paul outside of Christ died. That I is no longer there. I, that's the old I of Paul, have been, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, there's the old Paul, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So this is interesting. Paul talks about me. He talks about I. But is it the old I or the I in Christ? But what we can see in verse 20 is there has been an identity switch. Paul is still Paul. Paul, we see from this verse, is still living in the body. He's still in the flesh, in the body where sin resides and in the body where we have to deal with sinful impulses and things. I just think about my. My eating over the last few weeks, I've gained like six pounds and I wonder, how can that happen so quickly? Um, well, I live in a sinful body and I have sinful cravings and I love chocolate and I've eaten way too much. And and a change of planes um, recently and um, or when I went to California and having seized candy and I bought way too many of them. You know, I, I come back and I realize that. Um, I'm a sinner. Sin resides in my body. I have sinful urges. I have sinful cravings. But Paul is saying that we are not simply our sinfulness because that died. Yes, we still struggle with sin. Yes, we still struggle in the body. But the I that is you, if you are in Christ, is now the you that is joined with Christ. So you say it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You didn't become Christ. Christ is still Christ. You have, are still you, but you are new because you're now joined to Christ. And if you are you and you are new because you are joined to Christ, that means, brothers and sisters, that you live a new life. And that life is amazing. And that life has potentiality. And that life has power in it. And Paul is reminding Peter That he's no longer living to the law, the law that cannot save, the law that can only condemn, the law that can only incite him to sin. He's living to the Savior who fulfilled the law. He's living to the Savior who took upon his own person all of the penalty of the law when he died on the cross. And then he goes one step farther and he says, I myself have been crucified with Christ. I'm not saying you don't struggle with sin. I'm not saying I don't struggle with sin. I'm saying if you're a believer, though, you have already been crucified with Christ. That happened the moment you believed. And the power of that is that sin can no longer control you. The law cannot condemn you. Sin cannot control you. Christ lives in you and you live by faith. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh or live in the body, depending on which um, translation you're looking at. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. In other words, Peter, it's not by law keeping. It's by faith. Everything is by faith. My entire life is by faith. My obedience that I give to Christ is by faith. It's not me. It's by faith because I'm now the new me, because I'm joined to Christ. I live in this body by faith in who in the son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It's hard sometimes when you've got the pressures of life, you've got the pressures of sin. How are you going to get through? Remember that who are you going to call and the answer was Ghostbusters. Well, um, when you when you deal with difficulty, when you deal with temptation, when you deal with struggle, when you deal with discouragement, when you deal with hypocrisy in your life and in the life of other believers and you scratch your your head and you wonder, how can this be true? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to believe? Yes, Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Um, You're going to you're going to remember the son of God who did what? Who loved you? Here's my point. You know what will allow you to get through the most difficult times in your life? I'll tell you. If you know somebody loves you. If you know that no matter what happens, this person loves me. There was a great Olympic swimmer. And some of you are too young, uh, I'll say this name and you'll look at me and you'll, you'll say, I have no idea who you're talking about. But do any of you remember Greg Louganis? Raise your hand if, if you have any idea who Greg Louganis is. OK, I can tell that some of you are are older and the rest of you are younger. Well, Greg Louganis was one of the most decorated by medals uh, Olympic diver that the U.S. has ever produced. And I remember someone interviewing Greg Louganis after one of the Olympics, and they were talking to him because he had actually had a very bad dive where he hit his head um, on the edge of the diving board and he fell into the pool and there was blood and it, it, it was it was a bad dive situation. And um, this great Olympic diver who had had so many awesome dives had a bad dive. So then he was interviewed by one of the network correspondents. And they asked him, they said, so, like, Greg, like, what were you thinking about when your head hit the diving board? And he said, oh, I was thinking about what I always think about. My mother loves me. And that's what it was that got Greg Luganus through the biggest embarrassment Of his entire professional career and one of the most difficult things that had ever happened to him. What gets you through? The biggest embarrassments of your life, the greatest problems and challenges, the hardest things you could possibly ever deal with. It's not simply that your mother loves you. It's that Jesus Christ loves you. And showed you that love and proved the full extent of his love. When he died in your place on the cross, brothers and sisters, how often on a day to day basis, when you're encountering difficulty, do you say to yourself and offer up back and praise to almighty God? Thank you, Jesus. You love me right now. I confess to you that sometimes I feel completely disconnected from that love. Sometimes I'm so problem centered that I can't get out of my problems, even though I pray. It's like my prayer goes up about this far and then hits right back down. Anybody ever felt like your prayers were like that? You, know, you prayed and it didn't quite even make it up to the rafters. And then the prayer went right down because it wasn't prayer. It was more like worrying on your knees. You know, there was no faith in it. Well, brothers and sisters, what it is that we're said to have faith in. In this passage, in this amazing verse in one of the best, clearest most amazing verses in the entire New Testament. What we're supposed to have faith in, what we're supposed to believe, what we're supposed to trust, what we're supposed to rely on is that Jesus Christ loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This love is interesting. Paul, at this point, is not talking uh, simply about What's going to happen when he dies and his trust is in the God is in the Christ who's going to deliver him from eternal torment. That isn't what he's talking about. He's talking about a love that he's in touch with right now that allows him to live right now and every moment. Look, Christ lives in me, the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So my question to you is this. What are you living to right now? What are you looking to to give you the strength, the grace, the ability to cope, to deal with the difficulties of life right now? How do you deal with a world where people walk into schools and shoot school children? A world where some people don't have enough to eat. A world where other people don't have enough medical care. A world where disease threatens us. A world where world war Stands is a threat over us every day when we wake up. How are you going to deal with it in the now? Well, Paul tells us from his own personal testimony, he dealt with it by knowing what his relationship to Christ was. He was joined to Christ. He was crucified with Christ and he never forgot for one moment the fact that today he was going to live by the love of Christ and by the sacrifice of Christ you see how he describes Jesus first as the son of God? Jesus is not simply a human being, a great teacher who came into the world, was on the world's stage for 33 years and then left us all and told us, love your enemies. He was much more than that. He was the son of God, the unique son of God, the only begotten. There's only one like him. There's no more. There's only one. It's Jesus. He is uniquely man and God, and he is the one who came into the world to love Paul, to love you, to love me, to love everybody who's put their faith and who's willing to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he describes the son of God, Jesus Christ, is the one who loves him and the one who delivered himself up for Paul. That deliverance when Christ died in our place was not simply To keep us from burning on the last day. It was to help us right now. So that by being joined to Christ, being co-crucified with Christ right now, sin no longer is our master. And we stand before God blameless. And we stand before sin with an answer to why it is we don't have to follow into it. Why, when you're tempted, you can say no to sin. Nancy Reagan, another person that many of you probably don't even know who I'm talking about because you're too young. Nancy Reagan was the the wife of President Reagan, who used to be uh, a movie star, and actor, and then became president. I won't make any other comments other than to say that that's what happened at one period of time of American history. But Nancy Reagan had a saying and the saying went like this. Her slogan that identified her role as First Lady and it had to do with a problem in America at the time was this. She said, just say no. And she meant to drugs. Just say no. Just say no. Well, there's a tendency of people to think today that that's the way we deal with sin and temptation. Just say no. No, you can't just say no. Why? Because the power of sin is too powerful. But if you're co-crucified with Christ, you do have the ability to say no. I say no, because the I who's saying no is the one who has the son of God living in me. And by faith, I draw power. From being joined to him in his death and joined to him in his resurrection. So at that moment of temptation, I don't simply, in my own strength, apart from Christ, just say, no, that's impossible. Instead, what I do is I look to Christ and I say, Jesus, you're in me. Jesus, you give me power. Jesus, you're raised from the dead. Jesus, I'm joined to you. And so then I say no to temptation. I say no to bitterness. I say no to reactionary tendencies of striking back at people rather than loving them and praying for them if they've sinned against me. Brothers and sisters, don't you see that the power of faith is a living reality in Paul's life and should be a living reality in all of our lives? And then in verse 21, Paul, Paul ends this section and you see the parentheses. He's still talking to Peter. He's still clarifying. He's still trying to deal with the hypocrisy. He's still calling Peter to repentance to follow the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than the law of God, which is powerless to deliver. He says in verse 21 You see what I'm doing? I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. All that Paul has said about faith, all that he said about Christ, it doesn't nullify the grace of God. It it establishes the grace of God. And not only that, it establishes the law of God in us. Paul says in Romans three thirty one, he says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be on the contrary. We establish the law. And then in this passage, in verse twenty one of Galatians two, do we then nullify the grace of God through faith? May it never be on the contrary We establish the grace of God through faith, because if righteousness comes through the law and through keeping the law and through having the law and through being born into the law as a Jew, then Christ Jesus should have never died. And his death is in vain. And he died needlessly. Paul gets in Peter's face. He corrects him. He gives him the gospel. And he reminds them that the only thing that allows us to stand before God righteously, the only thing that can give us power to live above sin in our own lives, the only thing that ultimately makes the difference in any shape, form or fashion is the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe without distinction for all who believe, for all who will come for all who will trust and for all who will repent of their pride and thinking that they can do it on their own strength and who are willing to come and say, Lord Jesus, take me, break me. Let me die to condemnation, die to shame, die to fear, die to sin, and let me walk in newness of life in you. Where is Jesus Christ today? Is he in your head? Is he in a book? It's sitting in front of you in the pew or is he in your heart living by faith? Let's pray together.